Welcome back to Being Invested with me, Susanna Nicklin. This is the podcast about the personal stories of the people who make the markets. You are in for a treat today with something a bit different and really interesting. Right, so we all are familiar with the value and craft of coaches in sport and other walks of life. But did you know that investment coaches exist? This has been a new discovery for me, and it's a fascinating role, integrating lessons from high-performance sport and other fields, and really shining a light on what investing skill is and how to elevate it. There aren't many investment coaches in the world. It requires a rare mix of competencies, and my guest, Lawrence Evans, is one of the best in the business. He has worked with the world's top investors for over 15 years, coaching them using his own proprietary methods grounded in multidisciplinary research and practice. Lawrence has helped professionals across global markets to raise their gain, hone their skills and communicate their performance successfully with a grounding in self-awareness and discipline. I was thrilled to have Lawrence join me for the podcast. We talk about how he does this, what he's learned over the years and how we can all improve our craft, be it investing or perhaps any craft, through identifying the rules we use and knowing when to change them. I found it a very stimulating conversation and I hope you enjoy it too. Thank you so much for listening to Being Invested. And if you like the podcast, please stay tuned monthly for future episodes and spread the word. Hello, and welcome to Being Invested. My guest today is Lawrence Evans. And this is super exciting as I have met Lawrence via this podcast. Particularly attentive listeners of Being Invested may recall that Ella Hoxa, my third guest, spoke about the impact and benefit she experienced from having an investing coach. Lawrence Evans is one of the top within a small number of such coaches in the world. And I'm grateful and thrilled today to share with you this conversation with him. He's the coach of many famous and influential investors globally via his own company, Solomon Partners. Lawrence grew up in Swansea and studied physics at university. He loved sports and this love of high performance led him early into working in finance with Dean Witter in London. He moved to the competitive and boisterous culture of Solomon Brothers in the 90s, where he worked as a trader of U.S. equities. Lawrence is based in southern France and travels frequently to coach clients globally. Lawrence, welcome and thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Susanna. That was a very full um, introduction. Uh, A pleasure to be here. (laughs) Well, it gives us a lot of scope for uh, taking the conversation across a fascinating career and uh, into what I think is a really interesting and very valuable conversation for our listeners, because what you do is something quite unique and not something that many people are probably aware of. I certainly was new to this when Ella introduced me to her experience, and I immediately wanted to learn more and have really enjoyed our conversation since and getting to know what you do and and who you work with and what the outcomes are. So I thought we could start today slightly differently because usually I start with my guests' journeys to investing. Um, But because this is a slightly different conversation, because you're a coach for investors now rather than an investor yourself, I thought it would be helpful for people who are unfamiliar with what you do just to give a brief intro to actually what being an investment coach is. Yeah, maybe Susanna, the the best way to start is by talking about what myself as an investment coach doesn't do. And a lot of people assume that as a coach to high profile investors, I will tell people how to run money. Well, that's the first thing I don't do, which is I don't tell, I don't instruct, I don't teach in the classic way of teaching. I'm no professor, I'm no guru. So that's one thing I simply don't do. I also don't uh, enter the world of being a shrink or a counsellor or a therapist or even a life coach where I'm talking about lifestyle with my clients. No, I don't do that either. Um, you know, I don't care if your mum or dad locked you up in your cupboard when you were seven years old. I mean, that that's not something I'll delve into. 
But what I do do is I ask a lot of questions. Uh, I ask a lot of questions of professional investors as part of a structured process of questions. And what I will then do is challenge the responses to those questions if the answers appear somewhat inconsistent. And when those answers maybe do appear inconsistent, which is pretty much 100% of the time, I will potentially offer tools and solutions that maybe help with those disconnects. So that kind of summarizes maybe what I do. And, and within that, the one word I focus on as a coach is the word skill. And in the industry as a whole, skill, believe it or not, is shockingly badly defined. And it's very unclear. When you ask, if any of your listeners ever ask and meet investors, and they ask those investors, how would you define whether or not somebody's a skillful investor? What you'll find is most people will give the answer to that question linked to how that particular investor has performed in recent times. So they will give you some kind of near-term percentage return answer. Well, unfortunately, that is not skill. Why is that not skill? That's not skill because in the game of investing, luck plays a material role much more so than people like to admit. I mean, you can be a certifiable lunatic and generate enormous alpha in any given year, but it's not down to skill. And so one of the things that I always talk about and set the scene with investors is that let's define skill. And if we can agree together what skill is defined as, then maybe we can develop skill. And for me, skill is something you control be it any performance activity, skill has to be controlled. Does Rafael Nadal control his service action? Of course. Where the ball, whether the ball ends up being in or not, might be determined by wind or how he was distracted in some other way. But but it isn't simply just outcome. Skill has to be controlled. And I think in investing, the only thing that investors control is essentially what I call rules. How do they decide the rules of what they're going to buy, what they're going to sell, and the rules about sizing those positions? I believe they control all of that. But it isn't just simply that skill is the rules. I believe that skill also has to take into account that given a changing macro or micro landscape, those rules, given those changes, might need adapting. They might need updating. So the equation that I start with, that I, I share with my clients is, is that skill is the rules you have at any given time and how clear you are on what those rules are and how you decide systematically that you can show me how do you have a mechanism that decides if those rules need change. So in essence, I think that's what I do. That's a really good introduction to what you do, Lawrence, and a very clear framework for how you approach working with people and quite a provocative point, starting point, if I might say, which is, is why this is so interesting. The assertion that good investment managers may appear good because they have a recent track record of nice performance relative to a benchmark not being a valid reference point to judge their skill. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about what skill looks like and how you would either assess or hone or identify what a, what the skill required is for a certain investor, for either for their particular strategy, for who they are. I think one thing that's interesting maybe to tease out there is the person that you're working with and how important their unique composition or circumstances are in terms of understanding what skill is right for them, if that question makes sense. Yeah. And, and you know, let maybe let's take a step back that when I talk to investors, I think one of the first things to understand is that the investors I normally talk with are employees or they are founders or they are 
participants in a asset management company, be that an institutional investor or be that a hedge fund. And broadly, taking a step back, I think there are two kinds of asset managers in the world. And one is the one I'm going to, one of those two I'm going to mention is the default, is the the normal, is the fact part of the distribution, if you like. And the second kind is quite rare. And the first part, the first kind of asset manager that is in the world is that the, that everything is about near-term returns, that that good equals that you beat the benchmark or that you return a large absolute number, and that I'm kind of okay as I am as an asset manager because I'm pretty smart, and maybe any difficult periods of performance I'm going through are kind of transient, and I hope it will get easier. That is kind of option one, if you like, of the asset management world. Those kind of people tend not to want to be coached. They tend not to like the concept of coaching. But there are a second kind of grouping of asset managers, and those are the grouping of asset managers that, irrelevant of near-term return, they're extraordinarily hungry to develop and improve. And they are extraordinarily curious about what they control and that they understand that skill is absolutely paramount to being trusted by an asset owner. And they distinguish, to your point, between what is talent and what is skill. Now, a lot of people use those two words interchangeably. Unfortunately, that's inaccurate. Talent, I believe, is what you're born with. It's innate. And if you think about the world of basketball, for example, a talent theme might be linked to how tall you are. And you can't teach height. It's it's innate. But in, in my world or in our world of asset management, talent doesn't exist. I have never met a naturally talented investor. Never. I've coached a lot. To me, investing is all about skill. And skill is learnt. Skill is understood. And you have to be hungry to constantly develop skill, even when you have 50 million in the bank. And, And that is very rare to see that hunger. And a second point about that hunger is that quite often the hungry are also the keen self-awareness students. So to answer your point about skill and what it means, to me in investing, what I've principally learned is that self-awareness is at the heart of all performance activity, bar none, zero exceptions. And the same applies in investing. The most skilled investors tend to be the most self-aware investors. And so maybe I'll pause there for your thoughts. Just to go back to the basketball analogy and tight and your point that you've never met a naturally talented investor, what is the or is there an equivalent of height in investing? You know, you you, you know, for instance, you're not going to, you could be a fantastically hungry, curious keen, hardworking, self-aware basketball player. But if you're 5'3", you're probably not going to make it in the big time. The answer to that question is I don't believe so, Um, meaning that I meant what I said, that I haven't seen any talent uh, that's innate that will lead one to understand that that person is likely to be a more gifted, skillful investor than anyone else. However, if you ask it another way and say, have I seen in the thousands or a couple of thousand people I've coached over this time frame, have I seen any commonalities, the great or the elite investors that I've been lucky enough to work with? And the answer to that is yes, I see two. And that one of them I've already discussed, which is a hunger and a curiosity to understand their own EQ, their own self-awareness, which is completely a developable skill. So that is one that I think is a requisite. The second 
is, I don't think it's a talent, but I think it is a skill and it may be easier for some than others. And that is ruthless discipline. And what I mean by discipline is understanding that there are lines in the sand whereby I'm not allowed to break certain rules. No matter how much I feel or think this occasion, it might be different. This ruthless adherence to discipline and a hunger for self-awareness are the two commonalities I see in the extraordinary investors, which are limited, that I've seen. Very interesting. That's really helpful to break those two down. Um, so hunger, curiosity to understand yourself and a ruthless discipline, which means not giving yourself excuses to break the rules. And in terms of the self-awareness, can you give us some examples of personal qualities that are most relevant when you're talking with your clients to understand about themselves? That, how does that self, self-awareness developed and and maintained? You know, I don't describe myself as a psychologist and I'm not a psychologist, but one of the things I do use as part of the toolkit of my approach is I do use an array of psychometric tests. So one of the best ways for somebody to understand themselves might be to understand their personality in more depth. And whilst these psychometric tests aren't perfect, um, I use an array which are, I hope, a good deal more reliable than many. And it's a very interesting starting point of data to share with your my investors. And they will be the arbiter of whether or not they deem these results to be relevant or not relevant. So it's a it's it's a it's effectively a tool that is validated at the start or not. It's very rare that I have an investor when reading these psychometric outputs that says, oh, that's not me. Very, very rare. In fact, I've never had it. And so let me give you an example maybe of, I think, the way this best will come to life is I'll give you an example of, you know, some generic outputs, not generic, some specific outputs that I got from working with an investor and what that maybe surprised them about their job and, and how that helped them through self-awareness to develop in their role. So I was talking to a, uh, an equity long short manager. We did the initial session, which involves a lot of me fact-finding about what their process is. And then we got on to not only the conscious part of their process, but also the rules that may be subconscious. So this these personality traits. And as part of a strengths uh, psychometric assessment, this particular test looked at this person's strongest strengths in their profile and their weakest strengths likely in their profile and named them. And this particular person had their top strength uh, as a theme that was entitled restorative. And they understood that. And I described what restorative meant in that it was people with this strength tend to be naturally good at dealing with and fixing problems. They tended to love problem solving, innately almost, as part of their personality and who they were. Whereas this person's weakest strength of all was a theme called maximizer in this particular report. And people who were good as maximizers, and this person wasn't particularly, People with that strength tend to transform from something that is more viewed as very good already into something that was deemed maybe superb. So there was the bookends of this personality. And that may be a bit odd for some thinking, well, how is that relevant to the world of investing? What was very interesting about this investor was that they loved in their personal portfolio, their PA trading, they love buying value stocks or contrarian stocks or things that were out of favor, which totally resonated with me with their number one strength. Mm-hmm. Okay? Restorative. That was so they were they were seeing a problem that that would get fixed or that could get fixed. Exactly. And yet their job, their day job, 
which they were well paid to do, was being part of a very successful team that was very much driven by a growth and momentum strategy. And maximizers typically love maximizing, which is much more akin to polishing something that is already deemed good and polishing it to be great. And so whilst it wasn't conclusive that they were in the wrong seat, they concluded some months afterwards, without my further intervention, that they needed to change teams. And they did. They changed teams within the fund to join a team that was a contrarian value team. And it tended to work, I think, subsequent to that, a whole lot better. So I hope that gives you some kind of flavor that this isn't odd, that this isn't strange, that, you know, strength maximization is at the heart of everything all of us should try and do, rather than weakness mitigation, which, as professional athletes tell us, that doesn't get you to world number one, weakness mitigation. Strength maximization gives you a chance to be Mozart. And so that maybe leads into rules a bit. So when you say strength maximization is is the is key and and the only way you're going to get to be really great is the reason that in the example you just gave the investor going to do better in the value seat looking for companies that can be turned around or trading below the their their long-term value or whatever. Are you saying that in the long term that person is going to be a much better investor because the rules that are needed for investing in that strategy are ones that she or he will be able to be disciplined about following? Yeah, I mean the bottom line is there are no right and wrong rules in investing broadly. You can have any rule you like broadly, and it makes some sense. But the problem is this, there are right and wrong rules for individuals. So you have to map the rules that are congruent with who you are to what you do. And the starting point for that is an exploration around who you are, how you tend to to think, how you tend to feel, how you tend to behave. I mean, the asset management world is full of full of data capture, full of data capture. They understand analytics incredibly well. But when I ask them, what work have you done to understand the most important driver in asset management, which is yourself? What data have you got on yourself? The answer is typically nothing. So all these books written about the strategies of the great and market wizards, which is a great book, and it's all its iterations. But the problem with those books is that they are other people's rules. And whilst they're fascinating and interesting, it's potentially useless. If, Suzanne, I was coaching you as an investor, I wouldn't be dictating what your rules should be, that they are borrowed from a book you've read. I would want to find out what rules suit you, Susanna? Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. And could you give us some examples of what rules are? What When you talk about rules, what are some examples that your clients have adopted? I mentioned earlier that, you know, part of the process is to understand what any strategy, any PM has as current rules. So one of the first Socratic ways to approach meeting a PM is to understand what they do. And they will have rules. Some of those rules are conscious that they can talk to you about, fine. Other of those rules are subconscious that they can't talk to you about. By definition, they're called subconscious rules. And they end up being the biases, the human behavioral biases that we've all read lots about. But in terms of the conscious rules, an example might be, Okay, imagine I'm talking to you, Suzanne, and you're running an equity fund and you've got 50 positions in that equity fund. And I say to you a simple question, which is, Susanna, do you have any rules around the minimum position size that you have in the fund versus do you have any rules about the maximum position size you have in the fund? And you may give me an answer, and most people do. But when I cross-examine that answer, imagine you said to me, yeah, the minimum size is 50 basis points and the maximum size I'll ever size to is 500 
basis points, which are perfectly valid answers. But if I then say to you, well, does anything you have in the fund at the moment break that 50 basis point minimum? And quite often the answer will come back, yes, I've got these tiny little tag-in positions that I own, which are 20 basis points. And I say, well, why do you own those? Because it's below the minimum. Oh, I want to keep an eye on the stock. I want to make sure that even though it's a very low-sized position, it keeps it in my memory bank such that I don't forget about it. Well, that's clearly ridiculous. Right? And so another example would be, I say to fund managers, do you have any rules around chart, using charts or technicals? And a lot of people will answer that, no. And then I will say, okay, do you mind if I you know, ask you some questions around that? Yeah. So when you've looked at a fund, the fundamentals of a company, you've done all your research. Do you ever, as a final port of call, do you ever look at the chart before you buy something? Mm -hmm. And they go, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll do that typically. I said, why do you do that? Oh, because I want to check that, you know, it's not overbought or oversold or it's not. And I go, has that ever final look at the chart ever prevented you from owning the position? And quite often the answer is, yeah, you know, it has done at some times, very, not necessarily every time, but sometimes it's prevented me. And I say, well, you've just described to me the fact that you do have technical rules. It's just you're not aware that you do. So this whole discussion, this cross-examination, this Socratic questioning is, it leads to self-awareness in its own right as well. Yeah. And the rules... Those are rules about strategy. Are there rules, do the rules extend to their personal sort of behaviors, you know, patterns, habits, that sort of thing? Do the, are the rules primarily around what they'll buy, sell, how much of it? Yeah, I mean, there are rules that I was mentioned that are behavioral as well. So let me, let me try and put some detail around that. Human nature, I mean, we're all human. Active discretionary managers, as difficult as some of them are, they're all human. Um, and human nature says that we want as humans to be right. We love being right, okay? All of us want to be right, some more than others, but we all want to be right. And another human nature is that we all really don't like losing. Daniel Kahneman, behavioral finance guru, effectively created the notion that human beings hate losing two and a half times more than they enjoy winning. That is prospect theory, that is loss aversion. And that means that a 10% loss tends to feel two and a half times as bad as a 10% gain feels good. And most humans kind of nod their head at that and go, yeah, that feels about right. And so as part of the coaching, when you talk about the, the human involved, you know, some humans suffer more with loss aversion than others humans. And so for some people, the two and a half times might be five times. And so what you have to do with investors is try and understand what the bias is that that particular human will likely suffer with more. And then if they deem that to be a risk for them, introduce conscious rules that they implement with discipline to mitigate some of those biases. And the example of loss aversion might be that when something they buy at 20 bucks goes to 15 bucks, that they set a rule in place that says anything below 14 and a half, and I'm out, which theoretically might, it might be a clumsy tool, stop loss, but that is a rule that prevents a small loss ever turning into a catastrophic loss, which for that investor might be bias mitigation. So I don't know if that makes yeah. it. And to get to that level of self-awareness is a challenge sometimes. People are, are we are all somewhat resistant often to uh, greater or lesser extents to really understanding ourselves and it takes time and effort. Uh, what is the approach to that? How do you, first off, I guess, actually gauge the receptivity of somebody, the where they are in the journey already? And and then, you know, what, what does the, the next step look like to evolving that 
self-awareness further? Yeah, I mean, example, I mean, people often tell me that, you know, the great investors are the smartest investors. Um, I fundamentally disagree that I don't see any correlation between your intelligence and investment skill, none, other than you have to maybe have average IQ. But above average IQ, I see no link at all between being a great investor in terms of skill and having a massive IQ. In fact, I actually think it might be inversely correlated. The more intelligent you are, perhaps the more troublesome it is to be a skillful investor. But Does that come down to wanting to be a rule breaker or not being as disciplined? It it can be linked to being a bit of a maverick, and it can be linked to wanting to be right all the time. Mm -hmm. Quite often the smartest have the best arguments to disprove another person's argument. And I don't think in investing it is ever about being right, ever, on anything. I think it's about making money in a portfolio, that is all that matters. Being right doesn't matter on any individual name. Making money does matter. And it's not how smart you are, I think, as an investor that matters. It's how are you smart that matters. So how are you, Susanna, if I was coaching you as an investor, how are you, what is it about you that you're really naturally good at as a human being? And let's do more of that in your strategy. And let's find out what that circle of competence is. And let's do more of that rather than trying to be good at everything. A lot of people who come into this investing world who are super smart and super intelligent, they think they have to be good at everything. Well, no, that's not investing. Investing, you have to wait, as Buffett calls it, you have to wait for the fat pitch. And if everything makes sense, then go in. But if it doesn't wait and unfortunately the industry as a whole maybe maybe talking at a holistic level the industry thinks coaches are not needed the industry thinks that you know what's wrong with you if you know what's you must be having a really difficult time if you need a coach and yet you think about the world of performance generally you know anybody winning talks about typically in the same breath their team behind them they talk about how their coach or their mentor supported them along the way. And it's a we, not an I. We got there. Yeah. You hear it in golfers all the time. You know, the recent major winner at the US Open talks about his caddy and him being a we. There was only one athlete and it was the golfer, but he talked about a team. And yet investing doesn't seem really in the mainstream to understand that notion. It's changing. And, and when I started back in the 2000s, I think what I did was deemed lunatic fringe. Now I think it's much less viewed that like that, but it's still very early adopt. It's still not mainstream. And I love that because I get to work with some fascinating people. Definitely. Oh, a few things there I'd like to pick up on. One is interesting to me, which is the fact that you see teams as an integral, even in the investment process. Can you kind of explain what a good investment team might need? Who are the the players in that investment team? I don't believe in the rock star investor approach. I believe in much more a team diversity approach. And, And maybe let me share an example with you, which might resonate. So one of the psychometric profiling tools as part of this array that I use is helps understand someone's natural risk personality. And broadly, there are two kinds of risk in the world. One is objective risk. So if you and I get on a plane, what is the risk of that plane crashing? That is called objective risk. It's a number. It's a probability. And it's known. And it's low, fortunately. Um, And similarly, in the financial markets, objective risk is really well understood. And it's called volatility. Volatility is a measure typically looking back of how much does this thing go up and down? And they measure it, and it's pretty accurate. It's pretty helpful. But that's objective risk. But there's another kind of risk, and that's called subjective risk. And subjective risk is different. Subjective risk is, is if you and I get on a plane, how do you and I feel about the risk of the upcoming flight? 
Well, that's idiosyncratic. That depends on you and I. That depends on our risk personality, which is innate in all of us when we get to kind of adult age. And mo the financial markets don't even try and understand that because they think it's unfathomable. But it's not unfathomable. You can now, using psychometric profiling, pretty reliably understand somebody's risk personality. And in terms of teams, to answer your question, some of the best investment teams in the world that I've met are consciously risk diverse in terms of those personalities. Some of the worst investment teams I've ever met are risk non-diverse mm -hmm. and are clustered around maybe the risk personality of the boss. But they are unaware that that happens. It's mm -hmm. a subconscious form of team building. So are teams vital? Yes, because what I want someone to do, if someone is really strong in one area, I want them to work with somebody who's very strong where they are weak and vice versa, which is proper diversity. And unfortunately, that really is not well explored by the mainstream of the investment world. And how does that sit alongside a role for AI, for instance, in in some way diffusing or altering or complementing the, the risk personality of an investment team? Are you seeing the augmentation of human teams with technology for that purpose? Yeah, I mean, it's a very, very poignant question because, you know, some of the things in the last six months that I've been working on, I have my, my, my clients who are active discretionary managers focusing on process-based skill and self-awareness. But very interestingly, over the last few months, there's been, I'm curious to potentially work with some asset owners who not only want to select skill, not necessarily develop skill, but they want to find skill and helping them do that, but also using AI and in the form of chat GPT to help fund managers use that tool to better define what it is they believe the inefficiency that they are trying to exploit is. So the so-called investment philosophy. And do I think that AI can really materially help quicken and allow philosophies to be much more clearly communicated and be authentic around maybe the strengths and weaknesses of an individual human um, and use it at scale to transform the what a fund says it does and what the beliefs of that fund are and how individual PMs are authentically able to exploit those inefficiencies by who they are, I think AI has a material role to play in that. And it's something I'm exploring now, but can it have a massive impact? Absolutely. That sounds like at this stage, what you're looking at more closely is the communication of the skill yeah. and the yes. um, rather than the elevation of the skill. Well, you'll remember that, 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 that really there's only four activities that any active investor gets involved in. And, and think about it like this. There's buying stuff. That's, that's an activity. There's selling stuff. That's another activity that's separate. There's sizing stuff, which is distinct. And there's a fourth thing, which is called communicating all the previous three. And there is no doubt that that is a skill. The communication of what it is you do is a material skill that will allow you to generate assets under management over and above how your recent performance is. Mm. And most people don't necessarily spend enough time focusing on the clarity of the communication of what it is their philosophy is, as in what they believe in, and what about their processes unique and distinct about what it is they really do, i.e. their rules. They're not very clear. It's all jumbled. It's all, it's, you know, it's a complicated industry. I get it. It's super complicated, but it's very rare you get the chance to clarify that complication with an external sounding board. And that's, that's one of the things that I'm called. I'm called a mirror. I'm called a sounding board. Um, 
not particularly complimentary, but I guess that's what I do. Yeah, and that actually ties to that next stage of the process you talked about, which was understanding when rules should change and helping clients. I guess to me, it sounds like there's a tension between the discipline of not changing rules and recognizing when rules could change. So how do you help clients or what does that, what does that look like? What, what are some situations where rules validly change? Yeah. So you're absolutely right. There is a tension and there's the discipline to stick to the existing rules which is inherent in what I'm coaching, uh, as a rule following at all times. However, the key is the second part of the skill equation, which is how do you decide if your rules need updating or not, which is foundational to the definition of skill, as mentioned earlier. And most people, unfortunately, have their update mechanism in their brain, which on our brains are amazing things, but also very irrational on many occasions. And what I argue for is an explicit tool to understand whether or not your rules need updating or not, such that you can read and reflect on this piece of writing. And what I think Ella referred to in one of your previous podcasts was a journal. Mm -hmm. That's right. And journaling is that, in my view, whatever whatever you call it, it can be called diaries, journals, or just note-taking, but it's a feedback loop. It's a form of explicit, structured analysis, which has three benefits principally. It's an audit of your decisions that happened, i.e. I bought this on that date and I liked it this much. That would be an example of a decision audit. A second benefit of the journal is that you can find patterns in that audit. So you can start to see on reflection and reading of this written piece, be it physically written in a book or online or in an app, you start to see patterns in that audit. And if the third point is, if those patterns you think are causal, not just random correlation, and therefore random, you then decide whether the rules you have need amending. But you can only do that with explicit feedback that you are responsible for as a PM. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, the brain is not a good device to write this stuff down in because it's very, can be extremely irrational. And the brain tries to make us look good and be right and all those human nature things, right? And the best investors, another way of saying it, learn, Susanna, to be anti-human. And as odd as that sounds, there is no MBA program, there is no college degree, there is no CFA qualification that teaches us to be anti-human. That is very interesting because that ties back to the AI question as well, doesn't it? You know, if if being anti-human is the is a core part of the skill development, maybe there are some algorithms that uh, are going to have more power, obviously, than humans. Um, is that the is that something you talk with your clients about? Yeah, I mean, people have accused me of being a coach. That, oh, yeah, you're the coach that wants us all turn us all into robots. Right. And I'm like, no, I'm the coach that wants you to be using your judgment. Absolutely. But be more quant like with your judgment, not be a quant. And I believe there's an absolutely a thriving place for discretionary investors. But unfortunately, most discretionary investors lack skill. And the journal, is that a daily exercise how how do it sort of practically you work with your clients to implement that is it a is it a write down what you did today reflect on it say so what and do that every day what what is the what is the cadence or the the, the sort of practical way of habituating that process yeah again it's always down to the coaching meeting with the individual so i will never dictate oh, you have to write your daily journal and please do so in this exact way. No, it's a discussion. It's around, okay, in the workflow that you have, of what do you think you can do, number one? What will you do? What is the, Because 
I may give them some suggestions, but if they'll never practically do them, then I'm failing as a coach. So I've got to understand what is doable. And so some people do a weekly journal. Some people do a daily journal. Some people do it every two weeks. But we have to agree what the format is to do it. So let me give you an example. It's all very well on January the 1st, us saying, you know, we're going to go to the gym and we're going to lose 10 kilos during 2024. Fine. Great goal. But, and, you know, after one week of going to the gym, it's often the case that, you know, you look in the mirror and go, well, have I really made a difference? And sometimes in you know, the scale don't tell you you have, but you've been to the gym. So you're not getting any reward necessarily for the work you put in. But maybe you do it on week two and you don't see much gain, much weight loss. But some point between January the 1st and December the 31st of that year, you will lose weight if you carry on with that regime. But you don't exactly know when that's going to happen. But if you carry on with the process, it will happen, right? And it's the same with journaling. I can't guarantee when you're going to see the patterns that are causal that will allow you to change your process. But the very act of doing it with discipline massively raises the chances that you have more skill. So it's a game of probability. Like everything in investing, it is never about being right. It is only about probability theory. And most people are not taught in school, probability theory. They are taught that being right matters. That if mm. you get 85% in a test, then next time try a bit harder and you'll get 86%. Vesting doesn't work like that. It's a game of probability. It's a game of card counting. It is not a game of being right on an investment. And unfortunately, that is structural in the industry. And now, as you look forward, you've mentioned a couple of exciting sort of new green shoots in your practice recently. What, where do you see it going? What, what developments or evolution of, of, of this process that you've developed might be around on the horizon or around the corner? Well, as mentioned, I think AI will play a material role in coaching. Um, it's obviously very early stage, but I'm interested in exploring it with certain interested clients. I think that's one area. I think um, the whole world of asset owners, whereby they have to trust what are asset owners looking to do. In, in essence, they want to trust you, the portfolio manager. That is what, in essence, everybody's wanting. But unfortunately, when an asset manager sits in front of an asset owner, they don't tend to to, to communicate trust. What they tend to communicate is P&L. They, they tend to communicate recent performance. They tend to communicate what sectors they like or don't like. They tend to communicate their bio or their years of experience in the markets. But that isn't really what the asset owner is after. What the asset owner is after is, can I trust you? And I think that there is a big gap in the market around philosophy and communicating with authenticity, particularly, for instance, in ESG or impact investing. Um, that genuine philosophy of a team and how an asset owner can genuinely feel like they trust that team mm -hmm. as opposed to just looking at what everybody puts out, which is, you know, bland, non-differentiated. We look to buy undervalued assets and hold them for the long term, exploiting our deep dive capabilities in research. I mean, that's useless. That doesn't say anything at all. And so I think that's an area to explore. And, um, you know, I'm super excited also about the fact that post-COVID, a lot of asset managers that weren't so introspective are now much more open to being introspective and understanding themselves. And that is a that is something that is tangible, I've seen. And in essence what's, Yeah, what's driving what's driven that when you say in essence, sorry to interrupt, what was the how, was it directly related to being locked down and the Yeah, I, I think it's forced people by being in their homes 
they have more time to ponder not the distractions of an office, but what it is is their craft. What are they actually doing? When you when you take away a lot of the noise, as mentioned at the start, it's you know, what are you trying to improve as an investor? When you ask that question, almost everybody tells you, I'm trying to improve alpha or my benchmark plus returns. But you don't control that. So I would ask the question again, give me something you're trying to improve that you control. And I think maybe COVID has accelerated that reflection. Again, I don't know. Um, but I'm certainly seeing evidence of it in the demand side of the equation. Um, and, you know, I don't run a particularly great business in that I don't look to scale my business by hiring lots of little, lots of other coaches. But I'm certainly privileged in looking to work with clients that really get it and really understand it. That to me is the holy grail. And do you see investors also asking questions about the meaning of what they're doing absolutely. or is it pro- absolutely yeah. it's it that's you know people talk about sustainability and esg and impact investing and the like but the absolute meaning behind why am i doing this am i doing this just to earn a few dollars or a few pounds or actually am i moving the needle in some way on humanity um, and so i'm an you know, I'm an avid um, supporter of the notion of sustainability in ESG, but also not it's not just good enough to have that as a strategy. You've got to have skill. If you don't have skill and you run a sustainable strategy, you, that's not the solution. So, yeah, I mean, it's this is philosophical, but it's I think it's long. I think it's needed. I think, you know, the rise of passive is a, is is understandable. Because one of the reasons that it's risen so much is because of the lack of skill in the industry. And it's correct. That's how it should be. But that ends up at a game whereby if passive carries on growing at such a rate, which I think it will, then you'll start to see more inefficiencies created in the market, which will allow the genuinely skilled to exploit those inefficiencies. So active discretionary investing doesn't go away. But Unfortunately, mediocrity has been rewarded for too long in the active discretionary world. Advice for younger people um, or people who are earlier in their careers making choices about um, developing themselves as investors. What uh, would you say to them at this stage, given the landscape that we are looking at now and the uncertainties and the role of AI and and what you've learned over the years coaching people? Well, yeah, I mean, it's a very pertinent question. I have three three young adults as, as children and um, one entering into the world of investing, two in university, and the, I, I try and help them with some maybe some advice. And, you know, one of the th- things I said to them recently was that um, it's all very well and easy to have opinions in this world about what it is you might think, but maybe contemplate the world of science, which is it's more interesting to have hypotheses rather than opinions, meaning, you know, opinions are often hard held and strongly held and their, their beliefs have become hard views, which can be problematic, but the, science, the world of science is all about not having beliefs, but having hypotheses that they almost expect to be wrong. And I think not only is that helpful in life, it's super helpful in investing. And there's a lot of people with entrenched views, and I'd much prefer them to have entrenched hypotheses. Um, and the other thing I'd say I have said to, to my lot uh, is that, you know, often the career's advice is find your passion and and do what is do what it is you fundamentally love and follow that. And whilst that sounds right, I have a slightly different view is that I see passion not as an input, but an output, meaning passion isn't something you can get. But I believe if you do something that you believe in, what you get out of it is passion. And so my advice to them would be what fascinates you, what really interests you, and try it, experiment, do it. And maybe you'll, what you'll get out of it by doing it is a thing called passion. Whereas if you do something that you don't believe in, just because it earns a lot of money, maybe, but you don't actually believe in it, what you get out of that, the output of that is called stress. 
Yes, that disconnect between how you're spending your life and what you believe in. So I don't know. That may be overly, overly deep. But And do you think people can find meaning in going into investing at this stage in in the given everything that's gone on with uh, loss of trust in, in, in the investing world? Is, is there still meaning to be made? I, I think investing is one of the, you know, last sort of liberal arts. I think it's it's um, an amazingly interesting career for an individual, for anybody. I think it's incredibly interesting. It can be quite free in the sense you're, you can, you're paid to think. Your brain is the arbiter of whether you're good or not. Um, and uh, however, I think the mentality does need to shift is that you have to be prepared to do those two things I talk about. To be a great investor in five to 10 years time, you've got to be prepared to be self-aware. Self-awareness wins, not smartness, but self-awareness wins. And you have to be prepared to work super hard at discipline. And if you do those two things, you have a chance to be you know, on a podcast in 10 years' time with you or anybody else about how I became a great investor. Well, that's a fantastic way to start wrapping up, actually. I really appreciate that. Um, One of the final questions uh, lingering in my mind, you've just touched on the importance of those two processes, I guess, or attributes or, or commitments that need to be made if you're serious about it. And the discipline, if is, have you discovered any ways who, for people who struggle with that discipline to gain it? Is it just little by little? Is it motivational uh, rewards? What, what can catalyze someone who might have some, some difficulties with that dif- discipline? And, and it's a very good question because most people struggle with discipline. Um, the human, well, I talked a little bit earlier about human nature, and human nature is to be complacent. I mean, it's within us all to be somewhat complacent, some more than others. But part of what I do in the, this process that I talk about is I introduce the humble notion of a checklist. And a checklist might be the bad, bad word or bad phrase, but what a checklist actually is, is outsourced discipline. It's a device, it's a tool that outsources complexity to a framework that you follow. And I help investors create their own framework that helps them grade how much they like any given asset at any given time. And you might be amazed that when you talk to professional investors and you say, tell me a a stock you love in your portfolio, no, your name, and tell me a stock in your portfolio you really not sure why you own, but you do own it, and they'll reluctantly give you a name. And I say, okay, how much more would you like A than B? Quantify mm. that, please. And typically, 99% of investors cannot quantify that. Yeah. Mm. And that's what a checklist can introduce, which is a form of outsourced discipline, which you rent. You don't have to have as a human. You don't have to have innate discipline. Maybe it helps if you do, but I know plenty of investors that are skilled that have rented discipline. Great concept. Subscription model. That's what we need. (laughs) Discipline (laughs) monthly. Um, Now, that's really, really interesting. Well, thank you. Uh, We're just going to move into the quick fire questions to wrap up. Do you have a favorite quote and why? Yeah, um, uh, being a former sort of physicist, and I say sort of in that I never practiced, it was just degree level, but um, I always had an American quantum physicist that I loved to read, and his name was Richard Feynman. People on your podcast may know of him, and I love, and I have it on my wall in my office here, actually, which is, if you can't explain it to a six-year-old, you don't understand it yourself. And, and I think that sums up most things in that most people aren't very clear on explaining things. They like to think they understand it, but they couldn't really under, they couldn't really explain it to a toddler or and be understood by the toddler. I think that's extremely powerful. Well, you have Florence today explained some very complex things in 
very intelligible, comprehensible terms. So I think that quote has influenced you <laughs> seemingly. Um, and finally, to shout out to other podcasters, do you have a favorite podcast? I've been intrigued by yours and I enjoyed Ella's um, recent one. So I'd encourage your listeners to listen to that one. Well, happy to be your favorite podcast. <laughs> Um, that's great. Thank you so much, Lawrence. Really enjoyed the conversation. Uh, there are many threads I would have loved to run with, but uh, time is what it is and it's precious. So thank you and look forward to further conversations. Thank you, Susanna. I enjoyed it. Take care. for joining me for this episode of Being Invested. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. If so, please subscribe and tell your friends. Also, if you know someone in the financial markets who would make a great guest on the podcast, please message me on LinkedIn. I'd love to hear from you. Many thanks to our sound engineer, Alexander Russell. Our art designer is Sophie Hardy, and this fabulous catchy tune is from Tom McKeon. Thanks, folks, and see you next time. Thank you.